Welcome to the third and final episode of the Rewind podcast, looking back at Silverchair's 95 debut album, Frogstomp. Brought to you by the Handshake Agency and presented by me, Steve Bell. In the first episode, we looked at the rise of Silverchair from a bunch of mid-teen high school mates from Newcastle into one of the hottest bands in Australia on the back of their smash hit debut single, Tomorrow, and how they joined forces with the Mermot team to make it happen. In episode two, we explored the sessions for Frogstomp itself and how their side stage slot on the 95 Big Day Out tour consolidated the band's position as a genuine force to be reckoned with rather than a novelty act. We left things with Silverchair's debut having just been released in Australia in late March 95 and its subsequent debut at number one on the Australian charts where it stayed for three weeks. This is nine months after their demo of Tomorrow had won the Pick Me competition on SBS TV show Nomad when they were still called Innocent Criminals. Nine months. The three band members were still 15 and had already topped both the Australian single and album charts with their debut releases. There was still a lot of work to do at home, of course, and indeed the guys ended up working their asses off on the road domestically, within their school commitments, of course, but behind the scenes attention was already turning to the album's international release. The history of Australian rock and roll is littered with cautionary tales of bands making it big in Australia and then failing to make even a dent in overseas markets, and the Silverchair team were determined not to let this happen. They'd just become the first Australian band to ever debut at number one with their debut album, but according to John O'Donnell, the head of their Australian label Murmur, but still working closely with the team in a broader sense, nobody was entirely sure whether this incredible homegrown traction would parlay into international success. You know what? We weren't confident. Um, John and I knew, I, I think we knew that there was real potential for it, but um, we were sort of selling coals to Newcastle in a way. Um, and we knew, so we couldn't take any of that for granted. Um, we were fortunate the band went over to Europe for their first ever time leaving Australia um, and it was just before the album came out um, and they played a show in they played a show in Frankfurt they played a show I think in France and they played a show in London and um, at the London show the head of Epic Records Richard Griffiths um, who's still a big player in the music business um, he happened to be He was the head of Epic in the US, but he was an Englishman and he happened to be back in England um, around the time that they were playing. And so John used all of his charm to get Richard to come to the show, but also um, a guy called David Massey who we'd befriended and he reacted really quickly and got on the plane and came down to Australia from the US. He worked... David Massey, he worked for Richard Griffiths and um, David badgered Richard to attend the show. Richard did and he liked what he saw and he invited John and I to come across to New York and meet with him the following week, um, which we did. And, you know, again, tied it up with, um, tied the relationship up with Epic in the US and then Epic built a proper plan that um, kind of helped deliver it to be what it became. Um, 
And again, it was all pretty naive, but um, they, you know, Richard Griffiths and David Massey knew that there was something there, something that was real, and um, and sought to kind of take it into the market in the US um, in a way that was convincing. Um, and I didn't go on the first US trip they did, but I remember John calling me from Atlanta, which was the first um, the first show they played in the US, and he called and just said, you're not going to believe this, but there's queues around um, the street, kind of wrapping around the building, getting people lining up to see this band because tomorrow it already started working its magic at radio. Um, and there was a programmer that was um, a guy called Brian Phillips at 89X in um, Atlanta. I think that's the name of the station. Started playing the song and um, he was getting amazing phone reaction and amazing uh, listener reaction and they kept playing the song. And so when they played their first show in Atlanta, which was a genius stroke by John Watson to have it have that be the debut, um, things were on fire and um, the venue was packed, the band killed it. And he just called, not in tears, but just very emotional, going, you're not going to believe it. It's just people, you know, the venue's packed. There are people lined up outside trying to get in, blah, 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 blah. Um, this is incredible. And you knew that things were um, starting strong. Well, given the, you know, the history of Australian bands, like busting their guts to try and crack that lucrative American market, for this, for Silverchair to do it on their first song and pack their yeah. first gig, it's unprecedented really isn't it yeah it was it was it was you know it's a very different time than what it is now where things debut all around the world at the same time and something like tones and i can um start reacting all around the world at the same time you know we had to hope and pray that um six weeks or six months later people would pay attention to this song that we had called Tomorrow and um, support it. Um, so it was, you know, it was many, many months after um, it had been a big hit in Australia and there was still no particular reaction happening overseas. But, of course, once they went over there and once the fire had been lit at radio, things took off from there. Um, yeah, so it was it, it was incredibly exciting. I'd never been to the US until um, I went over to meet with Richard Griffiths ahead of the release of the album and ahead of the release of Tomorrow. But um, it was my first time ever in the US. And, you know, for the guys to go over there later and play their first shows, um, you know, and, and be in America for the first time was incredibly exciting. So by now we're in June 1995. Back home, things are still going crazy for the chair. Frog Stomp's been certified platinum. Third single, Israel Sun's been well-received and risen to number 11 on the singles charts. And the band had played some raucous festival and headlining gigs around Australia, which were only getting wilder and wilder. And as swimmingly as things were going at home, it was really starting to bubble in the States as well, in a really organic manner. John Watson who'd helped sign the band to Murmur and by this stage had left Sony and transitioned formally into the role of Silverchair's manager, which he'd make his own, had experience trying to break bands like Midnight Oil in the States 
but was still surprised at how much traction Silverchair were able to make with both their first single and their first album, which came out in the US on the 19th of June, 1995. We should remember at this juncture that the version of Tomorrow about to dominate radio in America, it would not only top the Billboard Modern Rock Tracks chart and the Album Rock Track charts, but was the most played song on American modern rock radio for the whole of 1995, was actually the third version of the song the one sped up by Kevin Shirley after they recorded it like a dirge in the album sessions, as distinct from the demo version submitted to Pick Me and the resultant chopped-down Triple J version, which took Australia by storm. There was also a shiny new US film clip for the song, instead of the one made by Robert Hambling as part of the Pick Me prize, and this also gained the band a lot of traction on MTV. Here's John. Sometimes... um the right song comes along at the right moment in time and it just strikes a chord. And Tomorrow was that song. You know, it was the most played song on modern rock radio in America in 1995. Um, and it was hugely reactive. You know, the band was selling out 3,000 capacity, 5,000 capacity venues in minutes. Um, the first time we took them to America, the thing that we did that, you know, in hindsight was a good move was most people go to America and they play LA and New York and they do sort of quite sterile showcases for quite um, for, for audiences that have seen it all and are hard to impress, right? Half full of industry people with their arms folded. Um, based on our Australian experience, we thought, well, we want, to, we want people to see the audience. You know, we want them to see the connection this band's making with fans. So there were three radio stations in America that for various reasons had discovered the song. One of them was in Atlanta, where the programmer had been brought to Australia on a junket um, to see the Cruel Sea play. And he'd come down, wasn't that impressed with the Cruel Sea, but heard Tomorrow on the radio, took a copy back and started playing it. Um, A station called 99X. There was another station outside of Detroit um, where the sister of one of the guys that worked on the radio station happened to be in Australia and and mailed him a copy of, of Tomorrow and they started playing it. And then there was a contact that I had who had done us a favour and put the song onto a compilation CD that used to be distributed with trade magazines. And it got picked up uh, off that and played us in Chicago. So when the band went to America the first time, they only did gigs in Atlanta, Chicago and Detroit because that was where they had airplay. And we drove up to the first gig in Atlanta, which was like sort of the equivalent of the Metro, I suppose, um, you know, the Tivoli in Brisbane or um, would have been the Hi-Fi bar back in the day in Melbourne, something like that, about a thousand capacity. And uh, there was a line stretching down the front of the venue, up the side of the venue and around the back of the venue for this gig. There were a thousand people queued up at four o'clock in the afternoon to come see them play. And that was the exact moment where I knew that what had happened in Australia was going to happen in America. We all did. Um, it was incredibly exciting and a bit overwhelming, really. Um and from that point forward, you know, the the extraordinary moments were, were thick and fast. You know, they played on the awning of Radio City Music Hall as the, um, at the start of the MTV Awards as all the limos were pulling up underneath. Um, you know, they supported Red Hot Chili Peppers at Madison Square Gardens. Um, they had, they played Saturday Night Live. Um, and those are just New York memories. There, there, there was a lot of success. And, you know, meanwhile in Canada, it was probably twice as big per capita. Um, and it really struck a chord. The only unfortunate part, though, was that the band was never able to, uh, because they were still at school, they could never really tour 
the whole of America in the way that they've been able to tour in Australia. So um, you know, most of America still only knew them as the band on MTV. And that definitely hurt in the long term. People in America still sort of largely remember them from Frog Stomper Tomorrow, even though the second and third albums both went gold. Um, and Diorama has a, a big critical following, and Straight Lines did okay as well on radio. They're still largely thought of as a Frog Stomp band in, in America um, because they didn't weren't able to put down the same roots due to their inability to do the touring because of the, the age and schooling. But it was still an amazing experience. And it's 50 separate markets there in a way too, isn't it, which makes it even It harder. certainly was then. It certainly was then. You know, radio was localised, um, you know, press was localised. It's totally different. You know, we're literally talking pre-internet, you know, or at least pre-many people having the internet. You know, even by the second record, you know, you, you were into sort of dial-up modems and stuff. But in 1994-95, um, the internet was still something that was largely just existing on university campuses. They still sold... It was well over two million copies just in the States alone, which is almost unprecedented for an Australian rock band, especially for a debut. It's it's a remarkable story or achievement. Yeah, and it could have been even bigger. Um, they Shade got added to a couple of um, radio stations in Seattle in particular, I think in Portland as well. And it was a number one call-out song, number one most played song, and the album went through the roof off the back of that song. Um but, the, but Daniel never really loved the lyric of that song. Um, I think all the band, it wasn't their favourite song on the record. Um, so they didn't want it released as a single. And you know, it's always, every band's like that on every record, right? There's going to be a song or two that afterwards they go, eh, I'm not so sure about that one. Um, Shade was that song on Frog Stomp. And so we had to lobby the record company not to work it as a single, which, you know, to their credit, they yielded to the band's wishes. And had they, you know... Um, had they sort of gone after that song, it probably would have done another million or two million copies. It was, you know, that that was a big, big single that was just completely left on the shelf, you know, out of respect for the band's wishes. So the team's eye is still firmly on the big picture because, trust me, you don't often hear people being so blasé about leaving a couple of million album sales on the table. And for the band in the meantime, things just seem to be getting more and more surreal. Like all kids who dream of making it big as rock stars, they knew that America is the place to be. But, as the band's drummer Ben Gillies explains, not even in their wildest delusions did they conceive that things could move so far so quickly and that their long-term fantasies of rock and roll domination would come to thrilling life before their very eyes. Yeah, the US thing was, um, was definitely surprising. And it's one of those things as well where you think, like when you're 14 years old and you think about America, it just feels like it's so far away and it feels like it's so impossible. So, you know, to have those kind of feelings and then, like I said before, just six months later, you're kind of over there playing shows. Um, it's pretty unreal. But, yeah, but when you're doing it, you kind of, you just, you just do it. You don't, you don't think, you know, you don't walk on stage thinking like, oh my God, I'm in America. You just, <laughs> you just, you just walk on stage, there's another show, you want to put on a good show. And 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 that's it. You know, um, but yeah, look, we, we were really lucky. And, you know, I think the way it all kicked off was uh, there was a um, radio executive out here, some station in, in Atlanta called 99X. And he was, um, he was the guy, I'm not sure what his name is, 
that he apparently heard the thing on the radio, um, grabbed a copy of the EP and took it back and started playing it. Like, you know, no one prompted him to do it or, you know, he wasn't being paid anything or there was no reason. He just he just liked the music and started playing it. And um, the fact that it happened like that, I think it was, you know, that kind of makes me happy. It was really organic and really, um, you know, really was just from the ground from the ground up. There was no kind of um, crazy promotion or no, you know, there was nothing. It didn't have to be really pushed. It was just something that kind of, you know, the seed was planted. After that first small but encouraging handful of shows in America, the band also played the Roskilde Festival in Denmark and some European showcases in France, Switzerland and the UK. During these shows, Frogstomp debuted in America at number 106 on the Billboard Top 200 chart. Back home, things were still going crazy. Susan Robertson from the band's label Murmur remembers that they were flat out trying to minimise the band's exposure rather than the more usual position of trying to jockey for more media positioning. As someone who's you know run labels and managed bands for years and years, it's such a unique situation with, with um, Frogstomp where you guys were sort of trying to minimise the exposure to, a, to an extent or at least be selective about it? I think we're trying to be a bit more selective. I mean, the, the boys were, you know, they were 14 and 14 years old going on to 15. And I think what they were quite cautious about is, what they were cautious about is they, what they didn't, what they did and didn't want to do. So we wanted to be true to them and they were teenage boys. They didn't see themselves reading Dolly magazine. So they didn't want to do an interview with Dolly magazine. So it was all about they really wanted to be authentic and true to themselves. And it just made complete sense. You know, so we stayed right away from the teen press, the tabloid newspapers, the breakfast radio, things that they wouldn't engage with anyway. So we talked to surf magazines, music magazines, anything that really uh, resonated with them. And of course, that was kind of a bit radical at the time because the thinking was always that um, any press is good press. So we kind of pulled back and we knew that being three good-looking teenagers from Newcastle, um, that there would be a lot of a demand from the teen press for them and that wasn't where they saw themselves and we agreed with that. So we kind of just pulled back, Um, not intentionally at first, but more like we want to build this, this band organically. They are talented. They're not... They're not a handsome, oh, I guess you could say, you know, I shouldn't say that actually, but um, they wrote their own songs. They were real musicians. They were big music bands. So we wanted to stay true to that. And that's kind of the uh, the blueprint that we set and the blueprint that we followed right through. It's, it's incredible how much demand there was for content at the time, wasn't it? Everyone wanted a piece of silver chair. <laughs> yeah, they were, uh, and, uh, you know, of course, the more you held back, the more that um, the media wanted them. But we just we were restricted to, of course, that they were still in school, so we didn't have a lot of time with them. So we had to be selective about who um, who they spoke to. You know, with photo shoots, um, we basically teamed up with the legendary Tony Mott because he was he's an excellent photographer, but also he related to them well and he worked quickly. So instead of having to do a photo shoot for you know all these different publications, we would do shoots with Tony, get lots of photos and then distribute them as exclusives to different media. So we didn't have to do individual photo shoots. I mean, the boys hated them to start with, but also too, it just wasn't practical in times of maximising the time that we had with them. 
What, what were the, the guys in the band like at this stage? Were they sort of isolated in a bubble to a degree and grounded or was it hard for them with all this, you know, intense scrutiny? It was, um, yeah, it was harder for, for Daniel, I guess, more than the others. I mean, Ben kind of, he was, he was such an extrovert and so outgoing and gregarious that he kind of thrived on it. Um, Chris was a bit more laid back and reserved. It didn't really bother him, but he didn't engage with it much either. And of course, Daniel, uh, struggled with it a bit more. He was a bit more withdrawn, shy, and just self-deprecating. And of course, the more that, and being the singer, of course, um, everybody wants to talk to the singer. So I think he, you know, he definitely found the attention overwhelming. And of course, once we pulled back on the media that they were doing, of course, you know that was when the media would camp outside their houses and, you know, follow them to and from school. And that was. It was really hard to hard to manage that and try and keep everybody sane. You know, there were things that were beyond our control, and unfortunately, they all struggled a bit with that. To me, it seems absolutely incredible that the three silver chair guys were living such double lives at the time. I mean, seriously, imagine going from being on tour in America and receiving such adulation on far flung shores, and playing with bands like the Ramones and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Blondie, all of whom they shared stages with in those early forays. And then coming home and having to study year 10 maths or English, how could you be bothered? Where's the motivation? And from my hazy memories of the schoolyard, kids can be real jerks, especially when other kids are doing really well at something. But fortunately in this instance, Ben remembers the attention from his Newcastle peers being not too bad. I think the fact that we've had some experience in school and we had had formed some pretty solid friendships and... um, we're, it just—it just felt like we were able to come in and out of the two worlds quite easily. Well, it was for me. Um, again, in hindsight, you know, a few years later, you kind of look back and you go, well, "That was pretty strange." But I don't know. It's—it's it's one of those things. It's about the perspective. When you're in something, when something is right in your face, it's hard to kind of focus on it and have a good look at it. But once you get away from it, and you can look back and and kind of examine it. That, that's that's probably the moment when when you turn around and go, yeah, that was that was pretty weird. Um, but somehow at the time, like it's, I mean, I, I think I was, from anyone can relate to it. But and it, it applies to lots of things in life. That somehow when you're in in the midst of something, you just find a way to deal with it. You know, if that can be positive or negative or whatever it is going on, you just kind of adapt. And you just get it done, and it's not until afterwards you look back and you go, "Holy shit, how did I get through that?" Did it, did it even help in a way keep you grounded, having that old life still? Like if you'd had that taken totally away, it might have been different. Yeah, I do. I, I think the school, as much as as much as you know, I, I think we probably could have maybe left for year ten and twelve. Um, we would have been fine, but. I do think it definitely gave us a grounding. Um, and a lot of our friends too, like a lot of the friends who I'm still friends with um, to this day, some of my best friends, you know, they kind of, they know you for you. They don't know you as being from Silver or they just, they just know me as, as, you know, their mate who, they, who they've been surfing with or who they've, you know, gone and got a, cheeseburger at bloody local fish and chip shop, whatever. Like, so they kind of, 
they just treat you like a per, like a like their mate. Where you know there was definitely you know as time went on, there's, there's definitely people that come into your life. It's it's a bit more like um, you know you're the guy in the band, and you know maybe they're a bit starry eyed or whatever. But yeah, I think having that was that's what it was for me. Those those close friends who I'm still with friends with today were really important to me. Um, you know, to to giving me that grounding, and also and also just as mates, you know, I think um, I think that yeah, the the, the the friends for me and the mates for me were really important, just to you know, purely for myself to feel kind of normal, um, but also yeah, for that grounding. John Watson, who as manager was looking out for the band members' personal well-being as well as their careers also agrees that the guys being able to slip back into their old lives in Newcastle was, for the most part, a blessing at the time. Yeah, look, I think that, that different members of the band handle it in different ways. Um, I think to some extent, each of them found some of the Newcastle stuff to be a really welcome return to normalcy. Mm-hmm. You know, because um, there's an old line that when you become famous, you don't change, but everybody around you changes. Right? Your feet still smell exactly the same. You've still got that weird rash. Um, but everybody else all of a sudden loses their shit every time you walk into a room. It's a very disorienting experience when you go from not being famous to being famous quite suddenly. And um, so I think to go back to somewhere where people still knew you from before and you know treated you with exactly the same amount of you know healthy disrespect, um, that there was a real value in that. Um, I think it was a bit different for Daniel, um, who probably, you know, like the front person of the band always tends to get a bit more of the, the visual attention. And so, you know, there were a lot of, and he's quite a creative, sensitive, artistic guy. And I, you know, Newcastle, particularly at that point in time, was probably not known for, for you know, being a creative, artistic and sensitive place. It was quite a rough, you know, hard um, working class community, industrial town, steel town. And um, I think that he probably struggled more than the others in that respect. But nonetheless, I think that the grounding that that gave them um, was sort of helpful at a time where otherwise their world was completely and utterly upside down. And the touring part they loved doing, but truthfully, you know, the amount of things they said no to, like they said no to playing, this was not on Frog Stomp, this was... Um, on the on Freak Show, but they said no to playing Wembley with the Chili Peppers in order to go to a friend's 18th birthday. No way. <laughs> so, you know, and there's a hundred other things like that. That's amazing. Um, you know, the number of times where they turned down you know, all sorts of commercial opportunities just because it didn't feel right to them. But while commercially things were going really well for Silver Chair in America, they began to get a little pushback from critics some of whom seemed unable to look beyond the band's youth and perceived grunge influences. For every positive review like that of US Rolling Stones senior editor David Frick, who'd spent some time on the road with the band and offered a frog stomp, truly shameless wannabes like Bush should be so lucky to have the hard smarts that Silverchair, particularly the band's main writers, singer-guitarist Daniel Johns and drummer Ben Gillies, show on such frog stompers as Pure Massacre and Israel's son. When these guys turn 18, they'll be really dangerous. There were other American pundits like legendary Village Voice critic Robert Christgau who scathingly offered, 
Every once in a while in this business, you catch yourself thinking that teenagers don't know dick. These Aussie adolescents admire Nirvana and Pearl Jam, which is cute, and sound like Pearl Jam, which is natural, almost exactly like Pearl Jam, except no good, which is useless. John O'Donnell, overseeing the reaction from back in Australia, wasn't really too taken aback by Frogstomp's polarising nature. I probably wasn't that surprised, just because they were, you know, it is still a naive record, but I think it's a very true record and it's very led by the band's heart. Um, So some people tapped into that and saw this as a really great record of its kind um, with a band with lots of potential, or some people just went Nirvana in pyjamas. But I think mostly the critical reaction to it was was better than I expected. Yeah, right. Wow. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've gone back just preparing for this call and looked at a number of um, reviews and a number of things that pop up on Wikipedia and stuff and went, oh, that's pretty, you know, the, the American press was pretty fair to the band. The Canadian press was pretty fair to the band. The German and French press was very fair to the band. Um, the UK press was scathing. <laughs> um, and, you know, again, arguably I'm not surprised by that, but I was a bit disappointed in that, that they didn't see beyond um, the obvious. Um, but, you know, I do think that that's typical of the UK press, much as I love it. Um, it is a more sensational, always has been a kind of more sensational press. Um, And so they um, took that ball and ran with it. And and I think we were let down by the um, UK record company who didn't really believe in the band and didn't put a lot of shoulder to the wheel and didn't really um, kind of work against the obvious um, of getting, you know, people down there to see the band play and they didn't have to like them all or anything, but they had to kind of understand that they're a legitimate band. They didn't kind of take that care and attention. And I think that stuff did happen in the US and did happen in Canada, did happen in France and Germany, um, didn't really happen in the UK. John Watson was also surprised to an extent by some of the overseas reactions to Frogstomp but not as much as by some of the other things that were transpiring as Silverchair's fame and profile grew both at home and around the planet. Many parts of the Silverchair experience were profoundly shocking to me. You know, the tabloid scrutiny that Daniel in particular received, you know, being on the front page of the the papers and all of that sort of stuff. Because what happened was that the more that we sort of denied people access to the band, the more the band denied others access to themselves, you know, they weren't keen to talk. Um, the more that those people became obsessed with them. So, you know, the, the, the Daily Telegraphs of the world, for example, um, just became obsessed with trying to get access to this band, I think at least half because we'd said no and everybody else was falling out of themselves to be in the paper. So, you know, they had put paparazzi photographers around the schoolyard and paid off somebody else who'd been at school to tell them which gate Daniel was going to ride out of and then chase him home through traffic riding on the back of a, you know, a Vespa shooting photos and... Um, put him on the front page of the paper the next day at the time Frogstop had sold, um, you know, 
whatever it was, 300,000 copies at 20 bucks each, just say. And um, so they, they, of course, need to say all of that money was going right to the artist, right? Um, so their, but their headline was the $6 million boy, hmm. um, you know, on the front page of the paper. Um, and there were incidents later in the record where a lawyer in, in America tried to drag, um, you know, the silver chair song into his desperate attempts to defend someone of a murder, tried to sort of pin it on the song, you know, which the judge immediately threw out of court. But that didn't stop the paper from putting that on the front page of the, you know, of of their editions as well. With you know, big, big, splashy headline, silver chair song, quote, a script for murder. Um, you know, vivid recollection of walking down the street with Daniel and seeing that sign at the front of the newsagent. Um, so, you know, a lot of the over the, it was an over the top record and there were over the top reactions to it. From Ben's recollections, the band members themselves were still just holding on for dear life as things were going crazy around them. And they did their best to block out the negativity as the inevitable haters began to surface. Did you pay much attention to what people were writing about you? Were you reading reviews and all that sort of thing? Or did you try and uh, you know, keep that, you know, not worry about it too much? I mean, in those early days, I I didn't really read any reviews. Actually, even even for the albums after Frog Stop, I didn't. I never really got into the reviews. I always music's a really hard one because it's so subjective, um, and you know, it really. I think people's tastes really depend on what they're brought up on, and and yeah. So I I, I think for someone to come along and and kind of critique. Music's it's it's a really hard one. Like there's definitely there's definitely I think there's music that's better than other music, and but yeah, it's a hard one. I always struggle with music reviews, and because what like let's say I'm reading a, a review of you know a writer for a magazine, and then you know let's say he tells me what his you know top five or top ten albums are, I look at them all and go, well, they're you know I wouldn't pick any of those. <laughs> then. You know, I just don't think I don't think it's uh, it's wise to read. Um, you know, I just don't think it's wise to wise to read reviews. I think as long as the person, the, the musician or the artist, actually no, sorry, the a musician is an artist. <laughs> um, as long as the artist is happy with the end result, then it doesn't matter what reviews say, and it doesn't really matter what anyone says. You know, if it's successful, great. If it's not, it really doesn't matter. As long as the person that's writing it and creating it is is happy and and they're kind of satisfying whatever that creative urge is, then it's then it's a win. So you were sort of immune a bit to all this. There was a lot of criticism of you guys. A lot of I think unfair criticism. Um, you know, focusing on grunge, perceived grunge influences, and your age and things like that. Um, so you didn't let that worry too much. Oh, look, you know, I, I think I'm still human. There was definitely moments where, you know, some of the stuff that people were saying and, and the names they gave the band was, you know, I guess trying to hurt our feelings. Or, or, I don't, you know, I don't know why people did it. Australians are classic, you know, and everybody knows this, we're, cla- we're, we're a classic nation of the cool poppy syndrome. Mm. Um you know, I don't, I don't know. I never, I've never really understood it. It's funny when you go to the US, right? Like uh, Americans, like they really celebrate success. Like one of the, you know, if one of their own is successful, like they all kind of band around and the nest, you know, 
they're really happy for them. But yeah, in those early days, people were definitely, um, you know, it was black and white. There was no, I felt like the band was very polarizing. There was no real in between. There was either people just loved us or they were like, no, fucking hate Silvertune. I just remember even when the internet first started really coming online, you know, and it wasn't easy to start a website. You know, you can't, you couldn't go on a GoDaddy and just, Get a website, and then go to, um, you know, I don't know, Squares, Squarespace, Squarespace, yeah, Squarespace. Yeah, you couldn't just get it, get a domain name, go to Squarespace, have a website in, you know, an hour. You know, you really in those early days of the internet, you really had to work hard to get the internet, you know, to get a website up. You know, I, I don't, I reckon there's probably was only a handful of people that actually knew how to do it. Um, anyway, someone went to great lengths. To start an I hate Superchair website page, you know, and and when you when you when you see stuff like that, it's just like, oh man, like, you know, really, are you really going to take up this much of your energy to create something like this? Like, put that energy somewhere else, something, something positive. Like, or maybe if you hate it, if you hated the band that much, just don't listen. Just go yeah. listen to something that you do like. It just doesn't make sense. If, or if it comes on the radio, just turn it off. Change the station. It's very, it's simple stuff. But anyway, I think, you know, you can't, I don't know, for me, you can't, you couldn't focus on it too much because, you know, I think those thoughts would just, you know, continue in your mind. And, you, you know, I think self-doubt, particularly in the, in the situation we, that we were in, you know, it's the last thing you need, I, I think. To continue the way we were, we really needed to have that confidence and that 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 excitement, you know, kind of continue on. So yeah, you know, I, I um, yeah, I avoided the the negative bullshit, and that's exactly what it is. It was just bullshit. Who cares? Yeah. It's funny, and I've I've had this conversation with Dan and Chris. It's funny how years later, a lot of people that were like. At the time, they were like, fucking hate Silverchair, they're fucking shit, whatever. But so many of those people, like, are the ones now that, like, love the band and they kind of claim the band. <laughs> um, so I just, I wonder if a lot of it was uh, people that really took a hatred against the band or criticised the band. I just wonder if it was one of those things where, like, if you're at the pub, right, and something happens and someone's, you know, you just got to, Dudes just go along with it, or people just go along with it because, like, I don't want to, I don't want to stray from the pack. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's not, and also as well, I think it's an age thing. Like, you know, young people are like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to not fit into the group. So if you know, if the top dog in the group is saying, "Oh, hey, sell the chair," then <laughs> you know, I've got to go along with it. You know, but secretly, I've got every album in my collection at home, and that's what I go to bed with. But you know, you can't, you can't admit that. Later, until until you kind of figure out who you are, and then go. I'm gonna stand up to the boy. I like to chat. Well, at the same time, they're worrying about all that stuff. You're touring the world with your mates, living the dream. So I guess you know, I know which one I'd rather be. <laughs> yeah, I'll take the two. I think. Fortunately, none of the press negativity or blowback from sections of the public not sold on their talent affected Frog Stomp's rise in America. It ended up peaking at a more than respectable number nine on the Billboard Top 200 chart and shifting over 2 million copies in America, 
an excellent feat from any perspective. But as John Watson explains, from a long-term management viewpoint, the success of Silverchair's debut album would prove something of a double-edged sword as the band matured and began to hone their songcraft on subsequent records. It's awesome that they had guys like yourself and John with belief and vision too to help them let, let them have those next seven years, you know? Well, we took it very personally, you know. Maybe we took it too, too personally in hindsight. Um, but it was certainly much, much more than a job. It still is. You can hear how, you know, when I talk about it, it's, mm. it's, um, it's the, the memories are vivid, um, both the good and the bad. You know, I'm still angry about some of the press mistreatment, for example. Um, you know, but the fun memories of, of um, you know, kicking a football with Steve Albini backstage at a gig in <laughs> Belgium, um, Belgium or Holland, one or the other. Um, and, you know, things like that where you just go, I just still can't quite believe that actually happened, you know. Um, the thing that I, I think you asked before about the sort of the knocking down the door element of, of Silverchair, um, internationally, there's no doubt that off the back of Frog Stomp, a number of Australian artists got given international opportunities that they might not otherwise have gotten. Australia became flavour of the month again. This happens about every five years, by the way, you know, over the history of Australian music, you know. Exactly, yeah. After in after excess, there was one of those as well. That was 86, I think, 87, um, with Kick. You know, a number of bands got deals and then it all went away. Then Silverchair comes back seven years later, you know, um, they get a big run, um, still living end and, and um, Powderfinger with My Happiness, um, uh, UMI with their signing to Warners, Magic Dirt got signed as well. There are a number of artists who, you know, got a shot, um, at least partially because Silverchair had enjoyed such success and other people said, oh, bands on the other side of the world can make it here, you know? Um, and that was great. The, the other big legacy element of Silverchair, to go right back to the start of the story, is that um, it'd be an interesting thing to talk to Triple J about, to talk to Richard about. Unearthed really got its start out of the Silverchair experience. You know, while the demo competition that Silverchair won wasn't a, tr a Triple J competition, it was an SBS competition, Triple J was a partner in the process in providing the, the studio time and was a huge factor in sort of playlisting tomorrow and, um, you know, making the band... Um, making the, making the band number one record. So Unearth started a year or two afterwards, I think at least partially in response to their recognition that, hey, there's some great unsigned stuff out there that we're not getting to hear. Let's give ourselves an opportunity to, to go find that. So if you think about Clinton, I think we're one of the first winners. Um, oh. And, you know, and if you go on beyond that, there's so many artists who went on to have um, careers as a consequence of that, you know. Similarly, on the Murmur side, John um, had fan, and Susan had fantastic. Um, uh, what's, let me rephrase this. John and Susan had fantastic latitude um, from Sony after Silverchair's success to go and sign some other artists who might not sound like everything else that's you know popular on the radio. Um, and so something for Kate and Jebediah, for example, um, both got you know really wonderful support out of Murmur. Um, that they might not have gone anywhere else. So the ripples of Silverchair's success are also, um, you know, a, a point of pride, I think, for everybody who was around the band because uh, a whole bunch of artists who weren't playing that kind of mainstream game could all of a sudden still reach large audiences now. Um, and that was tremendously gratifying. 
Ben Gillies, who with his mate Daniel Johns wrote the bulk of Frog Stomp as well as obviously playing on it, also has predominantly positive memories of his band's first proper recorded foray. Did your relationship with the album change over time? It seemed from a distance that sometimes that the early success became a bit of a millstone for the band. Yeah, um, I don't know. I've always been pretty fond of the record. Um, you know, obviously we grew a lot as as musicians and as, and as writers. But look, I, I think it's like I said when we first started chatting. Like, there's just Capturing that magic of something that's completely unrefined and it's just pure instinct and pure gut and doing something because you love it with every part of your soul, because it captured that moment before of any external influence, like I think that's what one of the reasons that makes it so special. Um so, you know, that's kind of what I hold on to. And that's what I, you know, I, when I have heard bits of the record since, particularly, you know, when you, as you get a little bit older, that's that's what I hear in it. Like that kind of, you know, that kind of raw excitement and, and that, you know, just just that something, yeah, just that something really unrefined about it that's really hard to ca- capture. So. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, I love it. I think, you know, and I'm really thankful as well. Like, you know, if 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 it wasn't for you know the song tomorrow, and if it wasn't for that record, you know, I I, I honestly believe like Dan and Chris and my life would have been extremely different. Um, so you know, I, I I count my blessings all the time. You know that that you know we we that we struck when we did and we, we had the songs that we did at that time and, you know, I think we were, we were very lucky and I'm very thankful. Yeah, fantastic. It really did give you an amazing platform for which you jumped off and had your incredible career. Yeah, man. I mean, look, we, we, we definitely still had to put in the work. Like, you know, it, 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 it does, what you said was perfect. Like, it was a platform. It gave us, it gave us the opportunities to kick on afterwards. Um, but we definitely had to have to work hard, and you know, the touring, as fun as it is, you know, it can be it can be really tough at times, and um, yeah, you know, can change a thing though. But yeah, you know, it's it's um, to be in a group with two of your best mates and creating music and and touring and recording and everything that comes along with it, like it's. You know, you, you know it's important that you stop and you're, and you're thankful for that stuff because you know not many people. Well, you know, there's a lot of people out there doing stuff that that prefer not to be doing. So to be able to do what we love um, and as a career, like it's fucking awesome. Well, so far we've mainly looked at how Frog Stomp went ballistic in both Australia and America. It also went well in most territories around the world but it stalled at number 49 in the UK largely due to, as we heard earlier, some unsympathetic press and a less supportive label. John Watson is quite pragmatic about Silverchair's initial lack of success in that part of the world. The UK was never an easy market for them, but it never really was for for, for you know popular Australian bands. They tended to be um, 
quite cynical about that kind of Australian music, I suppose. You know, they like they're quite happy if you were um, a disposable pop act, and they're quite happy if you were something that was way too cool and underground and edgy for Australia to understand that you know required their much more refined palates. Um, <laughs> and Nick Cave, whatever. Um, but you know, if you're in the middle, if you were you know, Midnight Oil or even in excess or Crowded House didn't break there till their third album and even then it was the fourth single, you know, like so the UK was always weird. Um but Germany and France were very responsive. Holland was great. Um Canada was amazing. Um Brazil became one of their um best territories. That was a little later uh in their career. But yeah, they they made genuine international inroads, um, which belied, you know, the uh <clears throat> probably the expectation of what you could achieve for, for a band that was still, bear in mind, everyone else was out there touring 40, 50 weeks a year, doing all the radio interviews, doing all the TV interviews. This band's refusing to do, you know, 95% of the media that comes their way. They're only touring during school holidays and they're still having the success. So it was a very unusual situation. In the 80s bands, you know, you could get two or three albums to break through, you look at picking one hundreds and collectors or gurus even, you know, they had a couple of albums out before that in excess oils. Did Silverchair change that, do you think? Like with their immediate success, was there all of a sudden an expectation that bands would break through quicker? I think they've always been bands that come out of nowhere. Men at work came out of nowhere and were massive around the world. Um, So I think there's always been, if you've got that song, if you've got Tomorrow or you've got Who Could Be Now and Down Under, um, then you can set the world on fire, you know? And I think that um, sometimes it takes artists a little while to get to the point where they're writing those kinds of songs, you know? Um, I think it's easier to acclimatise if you have the U2 kind of career growth, you know, where you, you step up one rung on the ladder with one album, then you step up the next rung with the next album and the next rung with the next album. By the time you actually get to the point where you know, people are screaming when you walk down the street, you're four or five albums into your career, you're 10 years into your career, you've had an opportunity to acclimatise. Um, there's a fantastic book um, uh, by Bill Zemi about U2 called U2 at the End of the World and um, it covers the whole kind of Zoo TV era of the band. Anyway, Pearl Jam is supporting U2 um, in Italy from memory and um, Bono says to, to the guys writing the book, he says, talking about Pearl Jam, he goes, there's nothing sadder in life than to receive something before you have a chance to develop an appetite for it. Uh, and I've often thought that in many ways was a description of the Frog Stomp experience as well. Um, you know, the things that gave the band um, the greatest joy were things like um, meeting Korn, who were then a brand new act that no one knew about, and they just thought they were fantastic and they loved them. I'm talking about the very, very first corn record long before they sort of, you know, became popular. Um, you know, for Daniel, it was meeting Steve Albini, you know. Um, things like that were were real bucket list stuff for them. Um, watching Soundgarden side of stage at Reading was another one. Um, these were all amazing experiences, but a lot of the other stuff that, you know, the pe- other people might have thought would be the fun part of it, they hated you know, um, the MTV Awards of the World, the the ARIA Awards of the World. This was not why they got into this in the first place. John O'Donnell agrees that in some regards, Silverchair's massive early successes did become a millstone for the band as they flourished into the expansive musical outfit that would soon bring joy to so many. It seems in a funny way that everything that you guys were trying to prevent happening 
in Australia, it sort of did happen in a way in the States though. Um, you know, like they did tend to get lumped with that teenage grunge kids thing, even though their, their career was amazing. They still had yeah. that bit of a millstone. Yeah. Oh, look, it did. But again, we, we knew that the band had the stuff that would continue to go on. Look, some of the people at, Atl- at um, Epic Records didn't think that they would have a second album, didn't think that they would have a third album. But, um, again, shrewd management by John, I think, put everything in place for them to take every step of the band's career really seriously. So the fact that the second record Freak Show sold 700,000, I think it was, maybe maybe it was over a million, um, in the US, again, proved that there was something real there. Um, and, yes, they got a lot of Nirvana in pyjamas and stuff, but um, right back to the first big day out in Sydney, back in early 1995, before anything, had, the album had been um, mastered or released or anything, um, I took David Frick from US Rolling Stone to the big day out and... His mind was blown by what he saw. He knew that they were derivative and that they were a sum of some of their influences, but he also knew that they were a great band. And so we had, um, you know, we were laying the foundations for them to be taken seriously, hopefully in the US as well as in, the, uh, in Australia. And not everything worked um, in quite the same way, but I think it put them in good stead to at least be taken seriously when it came in to album number two or three. Um, and they kept maturing and kept delivering great music. So, yeah, no, look, that that is, things blew up there really quickly. I mean, it was the biggest song on modern rock radio in 1995 tomorrow, much bigger than You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette. Um, and that's an amazing stat. But again, the band couldn't go there and overfeed the machine um, because they kept coming back for school holidays. Uh, sorry, kept coming back for school term. Um, so we didn't exploit the hell out of it um, the way that you would if you had a band who was 18 or 19. And I think we kept them reasonably level-headed, as did the parents. Um, and so we did our best job of trying to keep it as real as possible. Um, and as credible as possible. Still, as you'd hope with any good music narrative, there were some crazy rock and roll adventures going on behind the scenes, albeit slightly more innocent ones than usual, given that the band members were still in their mid-teens and being accompanied by their parents amidst the other entourage. Susan Robertson from Murmur accompanied the band on many of their early tours and recalls some of her most memorable experiences. I think always the first Big Day Out tour will always um, be the one that goes down in history. I mean, they were playing on a side stage. This was only in January 1995, so tomorrow hadn't even really been out that long. And it was just, it was insane. And we're all, you know, the band were obviously playing. The rest of us, John and John and I and their family were side of stage just going, this is ridiculous, like... It was insane. I mean, I'm sure you've seen footage or seen photos where people were hanging, some guy was hanging off one of the light poles and you just couldn't get near the stage. It was, it was insane. So that was, that was probably really special. That's when we 
really got a handle on where, you know, where this little band from Newcastle could potentially end up. And then we did we did lots of tours. I mean, I did a lot of overseas tours with them because by that stage I was managing the international um, marketing for them as well, so liaising with all the Sony Music affiliates around the world. So I would go on tour and then have, then be managing um, the interviews that they would do and just liaising with them from a record company perspective. And we had a great tour in um a great tour in South America. So we play or they played um. Show in Buenos Aires, and then we had a week off in Rio, oh, wow. and then they did a show in Rio and a show in uh, San Paulo. And uh, the Brazilians, are, uh, the South Americans, are um, historically very big music fans, and they were extremely excited about Silverchair. So those shows were just insane, insane, just playing these soccer stadiums, you know, 40,000 people. Um, and then we had a week off at this hotel in Rio, and that was that was great. I mean, it was pretty chilled. There were still people, you know, lots of fans at the hotels, and and we couldn't leave the hotel really without a bodyguard and and um, and an interpreter. But we went out for dinner, and we did lots of sightseeing, and played tennis by the pool, and that was pretty cool. That was that was um, that was a pretty special tour. And that South American tour was just, you know, just crazy. On the same bill of the festivals that they did was the Sex Pistols. And I'll never forget, we were just sitting by the pool one day and out comes Johnny Rotten in his, uh, I mean, you've never seen a whiter body. And he's got this silly little handkerchief on his head. And Glenn Matlock is wearing these um, leopard print sluggos. It was, <laughs> it was just, we, we were just like, huh? You know, all kind of uh, just looking at each other going cross-eyed. Um, there was another great time in, um, in, um, oh gosh, where were we? We just finished the North American tour and I think we're in San Francisco. And because my hotel bill was covered by the record company and not the band, often it was my room where people would end up after a show just, and you know, this is before they were 18. So it was all strictly legal. And it was just literally cleaning the mini bar out of Cokes and potato chips. <laughs> and um, I think it was the last show on the tour with um, I think Local H was on that tour, and uh, so we we're winding up the tour. It was the last night, and I think we ended up, we ended up back in my hotel room. And anyway, Chris decides that everything in the hotel room is going to go upside down. So throwing TVs out the window is is a uh, is a uh, passe now. So <laughs> I literally everything in my hotel room that wasn't bolted down was upside down. <laughs> and we're talking the facts, we're talking the pictures, we're talking the bed, we're talking the desk, everything, you know. And we had a really early flight to Europe the next day, so there was no time to time. Like, oh, God, i just got to go to sleep. I've got to get out of here. I've got to pack my bag. And uh, I don't even know what happened to that hotel bill. <laughs> <laughs> but there were lots of, lots of fun times like that, you know. They, we had fun times on the road. I mean, the one thing that um, John and John made certain was that touring was always going to be fun for as long as possible. So there were lots of days out and lots of go-kart, you know, visits to go-kart tracks and lots of sightseeing. And, you know, particularly with the mums and the dads on the tour, you know, it was novel for them to, to travel as well. So we did lots of fun, you know, fun things together. It was like one big happy family and, you know, they were great. They were like family to me. We spent so much time together and it was good, yeah, good times. Even though there was more Australian touring on the horizon for Silverchair before they knuckled down to begin work on their second album, Freak Show, which would eventually come out in 1997, a convenient place for us to end the Frog Stomp journey is at the 1995 ARIA Music Awards, 
which took place at the Sydney Convention and Exhibition Centre on 20th of October 1995. Basking in the Frog Stomp glow, Silverchair would take out five arias from nine nominations, winning Single of the Year, Highest Selling Single and Breakthrough Artist Single for Tomorrow, as well as Best New Talent and Breakthrough Artist Album for Frog Stomp. They were defeated in Album of the Year category by Tina Arena. Yet as John Watson recalls, the band members themselves didn't have to make any long walks through the crowd to receive their statues. There was a great moment with the 1995 ARIA Awards in keeping with the band's desire to avoid um, you know, being seen as sort of young and, and kid-like and, and their general disdain for award shows to begin with. Um, they didn't want to you know, accept their awards, so as a joke, um, they got Kevin Shirley, the producer's son, uh, Josh, who was even younger, who was about eight years old, to get up on stage and, and accept the awards on their behalf. You know, I sort of you think we're young, this is how young it could be. Frogstomp producer Kevin Shirley, who we heard from last week, also recalls being roped into action at the Arias, despite jet lag, mainly due to the awards dragging on past his son's bedtime. Yeah, that was funny. You know, they said to us that um, they expected that the chair were going to win something. I mean, the record had gone through the roof. But the chair didn't want to show up for it. And so they'd said to me, will you come to the Arias and, and have Josh do it? So we flew over. We were living in New York at the time then. So we flew back. And I think we got back the day of the Arias or the day before the Arias. And so, you know, Josh was like eight years old then. And uh, I said to him, they're going to do these things and they want you to get up and read the speech. And they said, he said, okay, fine. So he wrote it. We wrote the speech and he got up and he accepted the first award. And then by the time the second award came, which was, I think, Album of the Year or something, he'd fallen asleep on the chair. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I had to go up and get it from Meatloaf because there wasn't anyone else to go and get it. So that was kind of surprising. <laughs> Is that one of your career highlights? No. <laughs> no. Uh, it was fun. Yeah. As John O'Donnell explains, this flippancy didn't mean that Silverchair were turning their back on the 95 Arias entirely. Instead, they teamed up with one of their heroes and let their music do the talking. Incredibly exciting to have them play at the, I guess it was in 1996 when they played at the Aria Awards and for Tim Rogers to join them and for them to do New Race by, um, uh, by Radio Birdman. Um, you know, those kind of things, I look back and go to have Tim Rogers standing there on stage very happily accompanying these young guys, I thought that was something that John and I were both really proud of. Um, not that we'd orchestrated it, but, you know, we just made it possible for those things to happen. And had they been called innocent criminals and pursued the the um, direction that they were on, I don't think those things would have happened. And so there's things like that that, you know, you just can't help but take a lot of pride in. John Watson is also of the belief that performing the Birdman classic was an inspired move. And then at the end, as a bit of a surprise, um, they and Tim Rogers uh, did a, you know, a cover song. So instead of playing their own song, they did, you know, a, a cover and deliberately picked a Radio Birdman song, New Race, that's all about, you know, the kid's going to knock you out, right? And um, 
it was a really great moment because Radio Birdman, along with you know a number of other artists, was sort of ground zero for for you know this whole idea of there being a, another side of the track to how you can have a career in Australia outside the the mainstream media system. And um, so it was wonderful seeing you know Birdman sort of represented in that moment with Tim and and Silverchair closing the Ara Awards and um, somebody who had been instrumental in Birdman's career and very active in the independent sector over the decade thereafter sent me a, a note the next day saying, our work here is done, with the last one out, please turn off the lights. Ben, for his part, also has some very permanent reminders of the 95 Arias and their rollicking rendition of New Race, although for slightly different reasons than you might imagine. Final part of the Frog Stomp chapter was uh, winning all the Arias and everything, um... You sent Kev's son up to get him instead of you. Um, yeah. And then you did that amazing cover of uh, New Race by Radio Birdman. You had a bit of a interesting time on that night. N- knocked yourself out. I did. I reckon <laughs> I, I, reckon I um, damaged some of my vertebrae. Um, yeah, so what, what I'll, I'll explain. And I can't, <laughs> it's still haunting me to this day. It's one of those things where, you know, you say, oh, I did this thing and then it's going to haunt me for the rest of my life. That's actually happened. <laughs> with that moment so what we've been doing with the crew is I've been um, doing the gigs and I don't know why I did this by the way it's completely random <laughs> but <laughs> we put like a little like a little nick like a little Stanley knife cut in the front skin of my drum, bass drum and at the end of the shows I <laughs> I'd come out in front of my drum kit, walk out in front of my drum kit and do a swan dive into <laughs> the skin through my bass drum. I don't know what it was supposed to achieve, but it seemed like a, a dramatic moment for some reason. <laughs> and you know what? If I was in the audience watching that, I'd probably watch it and go, it's pretty weird. It's entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Oh, that's really funny to think about that. So, you know, I guess we thought it was just a good, that's our thing, that's what we've been doing. So let's just keep it rolling and do it at the Aries. So after we played, once we finished the song, you know, we discussed the whole thing with our crew, like, yep, don't forget to put the little cut in the bass drum skin. And um, so, yeah, all good, play the song. And then finish the song, I walk out in front, ready to, to do my swan dive, <laughs> and there's no cut. So I, in a split second, I had to decide, like, what do I do here? Do I just kind of wander off <laughs> <laughs> and look like an even, like, look like a tool bag? <laughs> or do I just do something else? So I don't know, I'll just hit something. <laughs> Equal, equally as weird as going through the skin is headbutting it. But anyway, <laughs> it happened. <laughs> were, were you out cold? Oh, I think I saw some stars. Like I definitely, I, I, you know, it's, it's like when you're able to, to go back to certain moments in your life. I definitely saw stars. Like, <laughs> and I felt a bit lightheaded. But somehow I managed to pull myself together and walk off. I reckon I was probably concussed. <laughs> And I definitely squash vertebrae. And look, who gives a shit? The theatrics <laughs> are all worth it, and we're still talking about it here right now. So, would I do it again? Yes. <laughs> Best. What a way to end the uh, album cycle! Like doing a Radio Birdman cover with Tim Rogers. It's uh, 
Australian Australian rock and roll generations are. Yeah, man. I thought it was. Um, I thought it was a, a. It felt like a very fitting full stop for the record. I don't have, even. I can't even remember, recall what we did after that show. I'm sure John Watson would have had plenty more touring planned because that's what he likes. And this is this is a fact that people have just missed. I don't know why people have missed this in the silver chair history. We decided backstage before we went on. With Tim, that, well, it's, it's not you and mine, it's not Silverchair, so we need a band name. This is a new band. It's the four of us. So we decided to call ourselves Speed Muffin. <laughs> I'm not joking, by the way. This is not a joke. And I'm pretty sure if you listen back to the, um, <laughs> if you listen back to the audio from those areas, can hear Dan. He introduces us. He goes, "Where's Speed Muffin?" And then we kick him <laughs> the song. Oh god, <laughs> that's a terrible name. <laughs> yeah, Speed Muffin. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, that's so, so that was that, those really odd things like headbutting a headbutting a bass drum and calling the band, band Speed Muffin. They're, they're my favourite. Yeah. Really, kind of out there and weird and interesting. So, yeah. So, for anyone listening to this podcast, go and look at Silverchair playing at the first hour. What at the first hour we play that, and see if you can hear us saying, or you can hear Dan introducing the band as Speed Muffin. We've we've actually had internal uh, internal discussions to change Silverchair to Speed Muffin. <laughs> no, we haven't. We haven't. And talking about band names, what better way to end this Frog Stomp Rewind podcast than by finally getting to the bottom of the name Silverchair itself? For decades, the party line was a tale about Silverchair arising as a name when the band mangled together a misspelling of the Nirvana song Sliver and a truncation of the UMI song Berlin Chair, a tale accepted as gospel for the longest time. After a while, a competing version of how the band name came about started doing the rounds that it was lifted from C.S. Lewis' 1953 fantasy novel The Silver Chair, part of the Narnia Chronicles, and Ben finally puts to bed any lingering doubts about what really went down with branding the band as Silver Chair. Speaking of that, can you clear up for me, which, which of the stories is true about how the name Silver Chair came about? Oh, man, oh, that is another story. I remember, so, we were in a... We were in like a coach, like a big bus, coming back from Sydney to Newcastle, and we just changed our name to Silverchair. But we literally got it. It was like a name on a whiteboard in the studio that we everyone started gravitating to. So that's what we decided to go with. I can't even remember who suggested it. I think it came from the C.S. Lewis book. Mm. I think I could be wrong. That, that's the point. I don't know where. That's the one we all liked. So when we were in this bus coming back from Sydney to Newcastle, Dan and Chris and I were sitting in the back and we were discussing that we needed, like, a cool story to tell people. It's the only time that, I can, that, that I'm aware of that there was, that there was, we put a lie into the, into the ethos. Otherwise, everything else we said, well, Christopher Lee, um, was legit. 
So we came up with a story that, what was it? Something about listening, we're re- requesting songs at a radio station, and we're going to request Berlin Chair by UMI and Slipper by Nirvana. And we asked Chris to write it down. <laughs> Chris, Chris is totally the scapegoat, like, you're a bad fella. <laughs> he, wrote, he wrote it down, the silver chair, and so that's how the, the name came about. That's completely fabricated. Um, Chris is a great speller. <laughs> he must be, he'll be stoked that that's finally cleared up. Yeah, yeah, let's clear it up. He's a great speller. He didn't do anything Um And, yeah, that was it. It was just a name on a board in the studio. I think it may have even been when we went back in to do the, um, to do the EP sessions with Phil McKellar. Another story that came out about Chris was that he had a heroin addiction. That was a rumor that we went around for a little while. When he was 14. So, it seems like Chris has been a bit of a scapegoat. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. Love you. So there you have it. The commonly accepted backstory about the silver chair name is a con, plus Chris is a good speller and definitely not on heroin, the perfect place to end the frog stomp journey. I'd like to thank you for joining us on this, the first Rewind podcast, and I'd like to dedicate it to my dad, Bill Bell, who sadly passed away during production. He would have almost certainly had no interest in this, but he would have listened to the whole thing and bombarded me later with pertinent questions because he was an awesome dad and that's how he rolled. I miss you, mate. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed listening, please rate and review this podcast through your favourite platform or podcast app and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to Rewind with Steve Bell, produced by Craig Trewick, recorded and engineered by Zig Parker of Green Room Sydney for the Handshake Agency.